Hello and welcome to the Week in Patriarchy podcast, your review of the biggest news stories through a feminist lens. I'm Hannah Barham-Brown. And I am your mystery host, Afra, and together we're covering this week's biggest stories in news, politics and pop culture from an intersectional feminist perspective, whilst also trying to decode some of the more nonsensical things our politicians and the mainstream media are pushing out. Yeah, in shocking news, we aren't fans of this government and we're pretty frustrated by stories affecting women or when big stories never get viewed in terms of their impact on women. We both met when working in politics and we have spent a lot of time trying to raise awareness of issues affecting women that rarely hit the headlines. So we'd like to think we're pretty well placed to hold some reporting to account. Okay, first up, Hannah, how was your week? How are you doing? So my week has been quite good. I've been oh, starting to take some annual leave, which is really nice and quite an old, a strange feeling for me because kind of got to do any since August. Yeah, um, for those of you who don't know, um, Hannah Brown Brown is a doctor, so yeah. she almost never gives herself a break. No, there, there is very little annual leave in my life, but I've taken some and I decided to do culture. Do culture. So first, went to see um, all of us strangers. <gasps> oh, firstly, right. I mean, it's an incredible film. It's a massive tearjerker. Take tissues. I was not ready. I was definitely not ready. But I will say that as a bisexual woman in a relationship with another woman, um, sometimes it's really good for me to kind of just touch base with my own inner workings and go, am I definitely attracted to men? (laughs) And are you? It's a while, right? And um, I can tell you, after spending about two hours watching Andrew Scott, yes, yes, I am. However, it seems to be predominantly gay men. And I did all that does about me. Um, I, I think that's actually quite a common thing. Um, a friend of mine who is queer says the exact same thing. She is exclusively into women, but the only uh, men she fancies are gay men. Right? And I found this really problematic when he was the hot priest in Fleabag because I am a vicar's daughter and I grew up in a theological village. <laughs> I have a lot of issues with Andrew Scott being a hot priest or the concept of hot priests in general because I grew up surrounded by men in dog collars. Um, oh. So it's very baffling to me. Anywho, so that and the last dinner party. Yes, okay. Right, incredible band. Incredible all-female and non-binary band. Um, they're kind of like really cool rock pop. They played Graham Norton show a couple Did of weeks they? ago. Yes, oh. I first saw them. And I am obsessed. Their album came out last week. Honestly, I adore them. Go and listen to it. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's theatrical. Their outfits are amazing. And oh, they're going to get all of the awards, I hope. I, no, I, for sure. I mean, my I, I have been listening to Sinner on repeat, so I'm so glad that you said that. Right. And how was your week, my darling? Apart from, you know, the last dinner party taking up all of our time. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, my, in comparison, my week feels pretty boring. I tell, I tell you what I did do, uh, a little bit of socialising. I'm not I'm not a hermit. I, I went out on Friday night with some friends. I had, I had three beers over the space of about seven hours and I've been violently hungover all weekend. So that's been that's oh, been my oh. week. I know. Um, I feel like I'm getting really old. No, don't say that. You're like seven years younger than me or something terrifying. Don't say that, Afra. Yeah, no, maybe it's just my achy body that can't handle it. Yeah, I generally, when I get hangovers, they go to my knees. Really? Yeah, my hangovers go to my knees. Mine are just all in like the front of my face and my head. It's not fun. It's not fun. But you know what? The last dinner party was like a quite nice uh, combo for me as I lay in bed dehydrated and sweating and just so gently perspiring because I'm a lady um, and listening to the last dinner party. Yes, we don't sweat. No, no. Gently and twinkling. 
So, Afra, let's start with our first news headline, and this one is from The Guardian. Gen Z boys and men are more likely than baby boomers to believe feminism harmful, says Paul. Yes, how depressing. We are talking about this article alongside a paywalled Financial Times one, which is kind of where we saw this story first, and it is a depressing one. Basically, Gen Z boys and men, and Gen Z is anyone born, sort of roughly born between, well, in the mid to late 90s up until the early 2010s, and they are more likely to think that feminism has done more harm and then than good. What is particularly interesting here, I think, is that this data has like really bucked the trend of younger generations tending to be more progressive than previous generations. And actually, this poll is basically showing that men, young men, are becoming less progressive and more conservative, but young women are going the opposite way. They are becoming more progressive. Yeah, and this is really interesting when you look at it in kind of context of history, because previously men and women of each generation have tended to have similar views and it's been a generational change that we've seen. Whereas now we're seeing this very clear divergence between men and women of the same generation. And this kind of ideological divide that we now have is really concerning as if it in increases if it continues into the future it's hinting at bigger divisions and that is possibly the worst possible thing we could see when we're living in a world where we're facing awful phenomena like violence against women and girls getting worse we're seeing climate catastrophe that is disproportionately impacting women and frankly we're also living through the flaming sack of shit that is late stage capitalism um, and so some of the statistics that have come out of this data is these data is really, really concerning. Um, it shows that one in four UK males aged 16 to 29 genuinely believe it is harder to be a man than a woman at the moment, which is quite shocking. Yeah. But, um, yeah. And I think we have to view this in the context of people such as Andrew Tate. Now, Andrew Tate, for those of you who have been lucky enough to avoid any knowledge of this awful awful human being um he is a british american former kickboxer who has 8.7 million followers on the social media platform x formerly known as twitter he's currently facing charges in romania which andrew tate denies of human trafficking rape and forming a criminal gang to sexually exploit women and this person has 8.7 million followers on x He's also talked openly about hitting and choking women and has said he is absolutely a misogynist because that is something to be proud of if you are Andrew Tate. Yeah, and I mean, I think a lot of this sentiment around feminism being harmful, feminism having gone too far, men having it hard uh, or men having less opportunity now is kind of being enabled and supported by exactly those kind of people, people like Andrew Tate and people like Jordan Peterson. And they've created this character. And I say, like, I use the word character deliberately because this character is completely fictional and they've created this for young men to identify with. And this character is typically a young man who is a victim of the supposed harm in kind of quotation marks perpetuated by feminism and these shifting power dynamics and economic status of men and women. And his character is also typically white, although recently Tate has been weaponizing ethnicity and religion to kind of um, widen the demographic he's appealing to. This character also typically does everything right, again, in inverted commas, i.e. 
they or he conforms to hypermasculine constructs. They go to the gym and body image is kind of the root of their masculinity and their root of their power. They are fixated on generating high amounts of income because of the excessive consumerism that comes along with that kind of masculinity, the cars, the houses, the watches, the suits. Very, very heterosexual, crushingly heterosexual. They're very clued up about tech and finance. They're misogynistic, they're hypersexual, and they view women as conquests and men as competition. And I think at this kind of era where we're learning and normalizing new ways to exist amongst ourselves, and we're doing this kind of all very publicly, very online, either within these specific gender constructs of masculinity or femininity, or out of them completely, I think that you know these these new ways of, of existing perhaps kind of create senses of confusion or loss or fear. And I think what Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson and the likes of them are doing are addressing that confusion or that fear or that that perhaps the feeling of loss of power that might arise when those gender roles feel less defined. Because if gender roles are less defined, they are therefore open to interpretation. And if they're open to interpretation, they are unknown. And if they're unknown, they are therefore threatening. Yeah, I think this is really interesting discussion when you then look at the kind of rise of the incel movement, because incels kind of by definition are the sad little boys that live in their mum's basement, um, masturbating <laughs> in front of their computers, right? They don't get out very often. They're not hyper-masculine. They're generally quite scrawny, pathetic. And yet there's this narrative of, A, you have to be hyper-masculine. You have to be sexually powerful. You have to be all of these things. And if you're not, it goes kind of one of two ways you either get really angry about that and you become this kind of incel type creature who thinks women are doing you wrong by not throwing themselves at you that you are you know kind of ordained by god as having the right to all of this stuff by very virtue of being a man um mm. or you go the other way where you're sitting there going well wait why am i not like that why am i not managing that and how can i achieve that and that has got a huge impact on people's mental health and we know from a kind of mental health perspective that men are more likely to complete suicide, particularly younger men than women. Um, women more likely to attempt, but men are more likely to complete suicide. And I think this kind of hyper-masculine, toxic masculinity narrative really feeds into that because you either become very angry or you become very despondent. And both of those are incredibly harmful. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And also, you know, I think that um, it, whilst it's true that we get to see more positive interpretations of femininity now on our screens, in our news and music, etc. And there has been this surge of um, of content, whether that's books or podcasts or film or music, exploring toxic masculinity, which interestingly, a lot of the participants in that poll felt the words toxic masculinity were quite a negative thing and didn't think it was particularly helpful. I mean, we've also had decades of very ri rigid representation of femininity and a lot of mockery, objectification and infantilization of women and represent representations of masculinity, whilst they still have to conform to some very weird shit, has typically had a lot more freedom and power than representations of femininity. But Hannah, I wanted to know, like, why do you think that these men have these views? So I think there's a whole range of reasons why this is coming up and why this is becoming a kind of more pervasive narrative. So firstly, like those of us who've worked in equalities politics for a long time, spent a lot of time kind of going, equality is not a pie right? There is not a finite amount of equality. If you make somebody more equal, that does not make somebody else less equal. And yet that is a very hard narrative to push 
when the perception is that there's a lot less to go around. You know, we are living in a time where our capitalist economies are fundamentally failing us, um, where, you know, people can hold down multiple jobs and there's still not enough to live off. Um, Property is inaccessible and our salaries aren't keeping up with inflation. And so it's very, very hard for people to kind of look around going, well, wait a minute, I'm working harder than ever. And yet I'm not. I'm not reaching those upper echelons. I'm not fulfilling that kind of very Tory narrative of if you work hard enough, you will achieve. That's gone now. And so who do you blame? And I think blame is a big element of this. There's this very toxic culture of, right, well, I'm working really hard. I know I'm doing my bit. It must be the feminists. It must be women who are just getting more now. And if they stopped taking what they think they're entitled to, in big inverted commas, then there'd be more for me and I would get what I'm entitled to because I'm working really bloody hard. And so I think that perception and that kind of the economic climate we're in is really, really damaging and really gives rise to this kind of narrative. But also, I think we do need to have a look at social media narratives. Now, many, many years ago, um, when I was an undergraduate, I did my um, dissertation on Islamic suicide terrorism in the media. And I looked at how social media platforms at that point, and these were the good old days where it was like YouTube and maybe a few people on Facebook, um, but how those platforms were potentially being used to radicalize young people and bring people into movements like like Al-Qaeda. So we know that Al-Qaeda were using a lot of YouTube and they had loads of accounts called things like Sword of Jihad and all this kind of stuff. I spent a lot of long nights watching videos of Osama bin Laden on YouTube. Quite a few nightmares. It was quite toxic, and um, I'm genuinely quite impressed I didn't get arrested. I had to genuinely write to the local police force saying, please don't arrest me, I'm doing research. Um, but like, we know that social media has been used for years to radicalise young people in particular, mm. and the algorithms definitely feed into this. These algorithms feed off this very extreme content, this radical content. Stuff doesn't get shared if it's, here's what I did on Monday morning, guys. Like. This co- the content that gets shared is the most radical, the most extreme. And Andrew Tate and his kin, like Jordan Peterson, really feed into that, and they use those algorithms. And social media has a large part to play in this. Yeah, but we also need to consider the mainstream media. Yeah, the fact that people like Piers Morgan, the wet blanket snot rag of a human being who claims <laughs> to be a journalist. Gosh, that was so polite of you, Hannah. So nice and kind. Right. I'm I'm doing really well on the not swearing this week. Yeah, I'm trying I think really so. hard. Um, I'll make it up. I'll make it up by swearing loads. Don't worry. I, I think it's an absolute toss pot for the record. <laughs> um, anyway, this toss potting snot rag of a human being who claims to be a journalist invited Andrew Tate onto his yeah. show. Like, even though there have been loads of negative headlines around him, he gave him a platform. And because Piers Morgan is genuinely quite crap at his job fail to hold him account to any of it really yeah. like he just gave him a beautiful soundboard where he could spout his ideology to a whole load of people who might have managed to avoid hearing it before and he just kind of went oh yeah i mean that's a bit questionable but never mind yeah. like that was it our mainstream media are giving them the, these platforms yeah absolutely and you know something i remember when that interview happened um not only did Piers morgan completely kind of fail to like actually challenge anything he was saying and also Andrew Tate isn't really the kind of person who allows you to engage in a debate with him he just talks at you but basically obviously what happened is when that came out clips were circulating all over social media and there was one that went really viral and I know it because I saw it and to be fair I did laugh because it was just so ridiculously funny but it was Andrew Tate going oh um, if I saw a woman at a festival I wouldn't even talk to her I wouldn't go near her I would never sleep with her because women who go to festivals are just sweaty disgusting peasants and then it sort of cut to Piers Morgan's face 
like genuinely having absolutely no idea how to respond to that. And what he's doing, he's playing exactly into Andrew Tate's narrative, into exactly the kind of clickbait and the views that Andrew Tate wants. And and that and the the TV shows, the channels, the broadcasters that plot for him are making money doing that, but harming the rest of us while doing so. Yeah, he's definitely kind of harnessing all these fears around this kind of economic loss and these cultural societal fears around empowered women versus disempowered men. And basically he scapegoats all women for all the problems that men currently face. He basically just points their finger at women and says, well, if you just stayed in the kitchen, this wouldn't be a problem. And yeah, it's populist. It's reductionist and it's misogynist. Yeah, and it's dangerous. And the fact that social media companies and news outlets basically just profit off of that and and don't challenge it whatsoever, it it just goes to show that, um, um, unfortunately, the kind of commentary, the kind of content that is deemed profitable is exactly the kind of content that is radicalizing young men to hate women. And that is just really, really disgusting to think about. However... I like. I want to end on a slightly positive note here because I know, uh, for me personally, when it comes to Andrew Tate, when it comes to like uh, online violence against women and misogyny and how it proliferates all over the place, sometimes I find it really, really hard to like see any hope going forward. But I want to end with like a quote from I think you know I think you know what's coming, Anna, um, from yes. our brilliant leader um, at the Women's Equality Party, um, Mandu Reid, and she always says that uh, when there's a time of backlash, um, it usually means it's because our side, the progressive side, the side fighting for those rights is winning and is doing is doing something effective. It means we're effective because it means that they're threatened enough to kind of cause this backlash to react this way. So if they weren't reacting this way, it would mean that they weren't bothered by us, but they are. They're threatened. We are a threat to them with so we are winning. We are slowly but surely we are winning. And I kind of refuse to believe um, otherwise. Yeah. And when Andrew Tate and Piers Morgan and his wet snot rags of followers decide to come at me on social media for this, I don't care because you're piss walkers. We're right. Exactly. <laughs> Now, our next story is from The Times, and it goes, After School Clubs Should Not Just Be for Tiger Mums by Lucy Fraser, the Culture Secretary, and she's calling for high-quality school activities for all, except those weren't quite her words, were they, Hannah? No, Lucy Fraser somehow managed to make what was, on the surface of it, quite a relatively sensible plan and a relatively sensible point still sound incredibly misogynistic and elitist by saying that these after-school activities shouldn't just be for, and I quote, pushy parents and tiger mums. Now, I checked the Wikipedia definition of tiger parenting. Note parenting, not mums. Big difference there. Anywho, um, and yeah, the definition is thus. Tiger parenting is a form of strict parenting whereby parents are highly invested in ensuring their children's success. Specifically, tiger parents push their children to attain high levels of academic achievement or success in high-status extracurricular activities such as music or sports. But of course, in the eyes of Lucy Fraser and her kin... This parenting technique seems to be yet another thing we should just blame mums for. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also um, important to note just before we continue that um, 
the kind of phrase tiger mum, it was um, it kind of came into popularity by the um, academic and professor Amy Chua, who's uh, controversial in her own right. But I think it's also important to note that that phrase tiger mum has some kind of racial connotations around it. It's often attributed to um, Asian women, Asian mothers, uh, and it's often used in quite negative and stereotypical ways. So obviously that's not what we're meaning here. But I also do think that it's just important to recognize that when we use that phrase, that there are some connotations uh, that are less than acceptable. Um, and, you know, the other thing that I wanted to say was that Lucy Fraser kind of um, talked about, um, well, she basically said that these services can't become a dumping ground for kids to let their parents work longer hours, which, I mean, the judgment and also the kind of um, ignorance in that phrase, it just it shows how completely naive this government is to the fact that um, many parents have to work multiple jobs to feed and clothe their children in this economy that our own government have, have basically tanked. And that also, yes, they are going to need a service to look after their kids inside what our society insists as kind of normal working hours. And it's partly because the government wants people to kind of go back to the office with no regard for how that actually kind of fits into people's lives. And, you know, Fraser also calls for these kind of after-school clubs to resemble, and here's where I think we both get really, really angry, to resemble those more commonly seen in private schools. And I know there was about £90 million um, sort of allocated to fund these. But, you know, the thing I think that really bothers me is obviously we're both on board with schools having more after-school clubs and those after-school clubs being well-funded, well-resourced, accessible to all. I think what really, really bothers us is the kind of like really elitist, classist language and possibly racist language as well around the way she talks about private school and state school educated children. Um, for example, she talks about the children in the same article where she's talking about the need for these after-school clubs. Her her kind of justification for why they're needed is because, for example, when she did work experience, when she kind of held work experience when she was a barrister, she she kind of went out of her way to point out that the private school children were beautifully dressed and on time, whereas the state school kids showed up usually late and not very smartly dressed. She then kind of went out of her way to point out, but they were just as bright. They just needed a little bit of help to believe that they could become a barrister, which is so patronizing and infantilizing. And what she's essentially saying is that we need more after school clubs because in, in state schools because we want these state school children to become more like the private school kids because we need the private school kids. They're the ones that are more valuable. Fuck the state school children. As long as as long as they're kind of upholding the kind of class values and and, and ways of behavior and speak and 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 dressing and speech that we want that we deem acceptable, that's like that's the only kind of criteria that I'm I'm accepting. Yeah, this this absolutely boils my blood because I I went to state school and I was incredibly lucky to have access to some amazing after-school clubs. And yeah, my parents were, well, well, you know, were quite pushy by some standards. We were put into every single after-school club. My mum tutored us through all of our GCSEs and A-levels herself to make sure we got in because both my parents had been to state schools. Both my parents had been to Cambridge and they knew the systems. They knew how to get us in and they knew what we needed to do. Um, but I'm also very aware that the clubs and stuff that we did were often run by staff voluntarily using lots of their own time with next to no budget a lot of the time we know now that like teachers are funding a lot of this stuff out of their own pockets they know how important it is and my teachers definitely put their own personal resources into it and so i find it so frustrating this kind of narrative of oh you just need to believe i'm like 
No, the people who are running this need to have the resources to do it properly, but also they need to be working in a system that isn't drastically underfunded. They need to be teachers that aren't already burnt out by the normal day job. And we know that by normal day job, we mean you get into the classroom at like 7.30, you leave around 6, and then you go and do more marking, and then that's what you do your weekends for. And any other clubs on top of that is just an extra thing to have to do. Like we know our education system is on its absolute knees. And so when we then have people like Lucy Fraser talking about her time as barrister, I did work experience the barrister as a state school kid. And, um, you know, it wasn't a lack of self-belief that put me off a career in the law. It was the fact that that work experience just wasn't very good and I didn't enjoy it. That was no, all. No, 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 no. Let's be honest, Hannah. It was the fact that you were poorly dressed and you were late all the time. Right. That. And that's the thing about all of this, like having the fanciest after school clubs in the world, having children learning Shakespeare after school is wonderful and all. But you know what? I'm still going to be late for my work experience, miss, because it's not going to sort out the public transport system. Mm. It's not going to fund my parents getting a car that actually works or being able to take the time out of work to ferry me from one thing to another and pick me up at the end of the day or get me there at the beginning of the morning. Like it's not going to be able to it's not going to fund my parents to go out and get me a work wardrobe for two weeks of work experience. It just shows how completely out of touch this government is that they sit there going, oh, well, if only we teach kids how to sing opera like they get in the private schools, they'll be able to turn up to work experience on time and they'll really believe that they too can be a barrister. Yeah. Good. It's very like, um, it's very like pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing, isn't it? And also, uh, it's it's also a sticking plaster for the absolute crisis that our education system is facing at the moment. I mean, obviously we want funded uh, after school clubs, but that doesn't address the fact that our our schools, our state schools, are massively, massively understaffed, underfunded. Like some, the buildings are crumbling, uh, and the government is doing fuck all about that. So it's like a fancy, shiny, sticky, plastery thing. You know, just you know, a few months before a general election, may I remind us all that actually isn't going to amount to. I mean, it might it might do some good, but it's not going to fix the giant gaping holes in our education system. I would say that actually this story could possibly do with a dead cat klaxon. And for those of you who are new here, a dead cat story is a story that politicians put out to try and distract us from the bigger issue. The big issue is our schools are massively unfunded and literally falling apart around the kids' ears. But it's okay because we're going to teach them how to sing opera after school. So it'll be fine. Yeah, and the T- TDLR version of this is ban ban private schools. Um, <laughs> I, went to, I went to a private school, um, so I, I fully uh, am aware of just how privileged I am with that, but I also fully, fully think they shouldn't exist. I would have been fine with that one, I'm pretty sure. And our final story, also from The Guardian. Everyone's second preference. Could James Cleverly be the next Tory leader? So let's get into this one, Afro, because... James Cleverley. James Cleverley is currently the Home Secretary. Um, He is the MP for Braintree, was first elected to government in 2015. And prior to this job, he's had some relatively short terms, like pretty much every cabinet minister, um, in both Secretary for Education. And he was also the first foreign secretary in the UK to come from African heritage. His mum was a midwife in the NHS who came to the UK from Sierra Leone. 
Um, and he was first given the role of Foreign Secretary under Liz Truss and continued this role under Rishi and then became Home Secretary in November 2023. So he's had quite a few short terms. Now, did James Cleverly <laughs> call Stockton North a shithole? <laughs> I mean, who knows? This was one of the first controversies. Well, one of the most recent controversies, let's face it, he keeps doing them, um, where in Parliament, the MP for Stockton North got up to say something about Stockton. We think he said, because it's a shithole. Yeah, he he being James Cleverly, obviously. He being James Cleverly, not the MP for Stockton North. <laughs> he does not think Stockton North is a shithole. That would be quite, quite hilarious if that happened. <laughs> that would be a curveball. Um, however, James Cleverly's excuse was to say that actually he wasn't calling Stockton North a shithole. He was calling the MP for Stockton North, Alex Cunningham, a shithole. Professional. Right? That makes it so much better, doesn't it? And yet, he got away with it. Of course he bloody did. Not exactly parliamentary language, but honestly, the amount of crap that's come out of that building in the last 13 years, he gives a damn. So the other big controversy, and I think the one that really, really grates on many of us... Um, is regarding his making of date rape jokes. So, yes. on the 23rd of December, at a Downing Street reception... So at work. At work. Yeah, in in the, his capacity as Home Secretary, who is responsible for, you know, challenging crime. Yeah, and eradicating violence against women. Yeah, yeah, that's quite a big part of the old job description there, James. Um, so the Daily Mirror reports that James Cleverly joked that drink spiking was, and I quote, not really illegal if it's only a little bit, and Ugh. that an ideal spouse was, and I quote again, someone who is always mildly sedated so she can never realise there are better men out there. Yeah, I mean, he's when he made the stroke, he was talking about his own wife and about how it was fine to slip a little bit of a date rape job into her wine every night. So the implications of that joke are horrendous. Yeah, it's really, really scary. And um, cleverly, there are many, many calls for cleverly to resign as a result of this because it all happened within hours of the Home Office, his department, announcing plans to crack down on spiking. Properly classy. Um, but he has apparently got away with all of this, of course he has, by apologising for what he believed to be, and I quote once again, an ironic joke. Now, apparently this drinks reception was perceived to be a private conversation. Yeah, just a, a friendly little bit of banter, just a couple of date rate jokes, as you do. Yeah. You know, when you and I banter, that is really the first thing we reach for, isn't it? I mean, honestly, I don't know what else we talk about. Yeah. Like, it's just so ludicrous because this was within a few hours of announcing this new policy. And what does this say about women's rights if this guy were to become the most powerful person in the country. Like, he is referred to in this Guardian article repeatedly as being a safe pair of hands, being really friendly, as the civil servants love working with him. He always cracks jokes at the end of each meeting at his own expense. He's he's a good lad. And yet, he's considered a safe pair of hands, having cracked jokes about date rape. What the hell else are the rest of them doing? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it really kind of indicates the, the like we're beyond the bottom of the barrel. We're like scraping, like a, just a guy who makes a date rate joke, and that's a, apparently the best of the best. And you know, you were saying just before we started recording, because I know you love a stat that this happened at the same time as you know, there's an average of 561 reports of spiking to police uh, every month in England and Wales. Yeah. Like 561. That is not a small amount of reports. This is a big, serious crime that he should be taking seriously. And all we know is that if this guy came to power, or if this guy even just became the leader of the Tory party, you have got somebody who is on form for saying within hours that he'd do X, Y, and Z to protect women, and then cracking jokes about it a few hours later. That's the kind of guy that we would be potentially being asked to elect prime minister. Yeah, I feel safe. I feel really, really safe. Okay, so when I read um, this article and specifically the commentary around, uh, you know, cleverly being a potential candidate in the next Tory leadership election, the first thing that came to mind was the notion of the glass cliff. Now, for anyone who isn't familiar, the term glass cliff or crystal cliff, as it's also known, is when someone from a minoritized background, typically a woman or somebody from the global ethnic majority, is promoted to positions of higher power during a time of crisis. So when the likelihood of failure is more likely. Um, and there's like evidence to show that it's happened in organizations like on the brink of bankruptcy or say political parties on the edge of historic losses just before a spring general election. Yeah, yeah funny that, isn't it? And if you look at the prime ministers we've had since the downfall of Boris Johnson and the kind of like downward spiral of like chaos, incompetence and utter ineptitude of the conservatives, which like, okay, I know he wasn't solely responsible for, but he very much facilitated. So the people we've had in major positions of power since then have like actually often been women um, and or people of colour. So whether that was like James Cleverly as foreign sec to Pretty Patel and Suella Braveman as home sec and then to Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak as prime minister. I mean, the infamous, what was it like 20 seconds of Liz Truss as prime minister? There's been this trend of putting people from marginalized backgrounds in charge to take the fall as the old white men stay in the background, like biding their time. Yeah, this has been part of the Tory playbook for a long time now. And you could say that we've kind of seen the glass cliff effect in place since David Cameron stepped down after his huge failure or... You know, if you think so, then great success with Brexit. But honestly, if you think Brexit was a success, I think you might be listening to the wrong podcast. Yeah, don't don't listen. Go somewhere else. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really sorry. You're not you're not going to get any fans here. Um, but yeah, since since David Cameron did that, he paved the way for Theresa May to come and sort out his mess. And lo and behold, she had a very very difficult job to do. And arguably didn't do it very well mm-hmm. yeah and like i want to make this clear i'm not i'm we're obviously not suggesting that people from marginalized backgrounds in general are put into these positions of power simply to take the fall and not because of their own merit and c- capability obviously that is not the norm i'm just saying that politics is famously a pretty exclusive institution in this country so it's fascinating to me that so many women and black and brown politicians have become the face of the party right as that party is dismantling its own legacy and I I hope sinking like a flaming ship in the next general election. Yeah, I think what we've seen over and over again is particularly with prime ministers who've also almost become sacrificial lambs. It's kind of like, right, if we put them forward into this role, then the old white guys in the background can carry on running Tory HQ and the movement will continue ad infinitum because we'll have pushed everybody that we're not that bothered about because they're not an old white guy to the front when we've left them in a position where all they can do is screw up because there is no way of getting out of this mess without looking horrifically awful. 
And like also, sorry, just to like do a little like link back way to the very first article. It's also terrible that this is happening at the same time as you've got younger generations being like, uh, women has women's equality has gone too far. And then they're pointing to people like Theresa May and Liz Truss being like, yeah, look, obviously it's gone too far. A woman went into power and she completely fucked it up immediately. And you could say the same thing if you're being a racist as well. So it's it like these things are all interlinked with each other, the way that politicians like talk about women and the way that politicians talk about race and the way that politicians handle really serious massive issues like misogyny like violence against women like institutionalized racism trickles down into the way that the media talks about it and trickles down into the way people on social media talk about it and the way that social media algorithms push those ideas round and round and round hitting us all over and over and over with this really extreme or or the normalization of extreme views so like it's quite a scary little loop that um i've kind of put together i'm so clever aren't i um Hannah, you I'm, are. just, I'm just look at me i'm really proud of what i've just done that i'm, I'm very proud of you yeah. I think it, it is really interesting because every single time somebody like liz truss or Theresa may or whoever it is has come to power in massive inverted commas i've had journalists kind of go but isn't this a sign that we've now got equality yeah. and i just always want to look at them and go would you want to do that job right now yeah, and also equality for whom? For for the middle class, upper class, wealthy white women. Yeah. The what was it? it was Rishi Sunak the billionaire? Equality for more billionaires? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, I did worry that Rishi Sunak was looking like he was a bit broke for once, but it's okay because his wife's got it, and they don't have to declare his wife's wealth. Why don't they have to declare his wife's wealth? Because our political system is based in this structure that still believes that our prime ministers are going to be men who are married to women who do not take in money because. Because historically, women didn't have money. So there was nothing that they had to declare on behalf of their spouse. So now we have a situation where we have a ludicrously wealthy prime minister with an all even more disgustingly wealthy wife. And yet he doesn't have to declare any of that or her interests or the fact that she's benefits from quite a lot of things that have been quite bad for the economy recently, whilst he's literally been in charge of it doesn't have to declare any of that because our system still fundamentally is based on the idea that our prime minister will be a man married to a woman who will not have a job or any income so why would we need to declare it boom okay sorry this was not the takeaway at all that i'm supposed to get from this but do you know what i've really when i was listening to you do that beautiful poetic rant in my ear i was basically like producer alex can we have a little sound that goes like misogyny or something that we can just like <laughs> press <laughs> for like when these things happen so we could just sort of end those beautiful moments with like a little misogyny i'm yeah. worried our entire podcast will just become misogyny yeah it will be like um you know it'll just like haunt people in their dreams you know they'll listen to the podcast they'll, their dreams will be filled with that it'll it'll be in their ears as they walk around in, at home because kind of misogyny follows you. us everywhere. So yeah, I want the patriarchy to hear this and have that stuck in their ear forever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Producer that Alex one. is gonna work her magic on that. <laughs> Look, she's she's got a face of uh of sort of mild delirium. So I'm gonna take it as a positive sign. Yeah. We'll we'll do our best. We heard from producer Alex. She's real. Um <laughs> With that, thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Week in Patriarchy. You can find a link to the transcript of this episode in the show notes and on our Substack page. Yes, and we are aiming to release episodes every couple of weeks as we get started. So if you like it, it might just become a weekly thing. 
So please be sure to follow us and subscribe wherever you source your podcasts. We're on Instagram at The Week in Patriarchy Pod and also on Substack where you just need to search The Week in Patriarchy Podcast and that way you'll be the first to know when a new episode drops. Yes, and you know, please give us ratings because it helps other people find us or tell your mates to follow us. And if you really love us, share our socials, give us good reviews, and we can really kickstart our fight back against the patriarchal bullshittery that surrounds us daily. So finally, huge thanks to our incredibly patient and technically marvellous producers, producer Alex and producer Jess. And thank you for joining us on The Week in Patriarchy. We'll be back very soon. Misogyny, misogyny, misogyny.